You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. That's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here. If you're new here today, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a joy to be able to gather on such a beautiful day. Amen. Amen. So if you guys have your Bible, uh, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we're going to look at that together. And I'm just going to re- reread that first verse because this is where we're going to dive in. There's a lot to cover today. There's some deep waters here uh, theologically, but also some stuff that's super simple. So I'm excited about what may be in store for us. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, so here's the question, key question, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Meaning, who do the people say I am, is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, why would they respond that way? Why would they say John the Baptist, Elijah, or maybe Jeremiah? Well, in ancient Jewish thought, these guys were Jewish, remember? In ancient Jewish thought, there was a hope that Elijah would have a second coming, or maybe that Jeremiah would have a second coming. And in light of all that Jesus did and the amazing ways that he carried himself and the miracles that he did, you know, there was kind of like, wow, there's something happening here. We don't really know what it is, so maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's Jeremiah. We've seen there's a lot of other opinions as well about Jesus. But it sounds like the disciples here are taking more of the, like, politically correct approach with with Jesus. Like, they're not trying to stir, they're not trying to stir anything up in terms of the negative necessarily. But I wonder what people today would say when asked the same question. It's good for us to think about in terms of our context. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that Jesus is? Like, what's what's your experience with that? For me, it seems like it ranges from just kind of an indifference, you know, or like an apathy, right? Like, Jesus is just, 
like, yeah, I've heard of him, and that's cool, but it's not really on the radar at all, right? Or for many people, it's like, yeah, you know, a figure of history, great moral teacher, kind of on the same level as, like, other famous moral teachers, like maybe Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or something like that. You know, you, you rarely hear someone, like, outright, outright, outright denounce Jesus as just a fool or crazy or something like that, right? And that's interesting, I think, in light of sometimes how his followers are viewed, right? But I think that most people don't think that deeply about Jesus. So if you were to ask them a question like Jesus asked his disciples— we just kind of live our lives and do our things if, if we don't know who Jesus is and, you know, whatever, right? But let's look back at our text. Jesus is less concerned about outside opinions as much as he is inside opinions. Look at, look at the text. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? What do you think? Who do you, like, that's a great question for disciples then, disciples now. Who do we say that he is? I mean, that's the question, right? This is the question where, where Christianity rises or falls. We don't have the option to just say good moral teacher. Like, what do, you, what, what, what do we make of Jesus? Believer, unbeliever? Was he crazy? Was he a liar? Best liar the world has ever known? Delusional? Lord of the universe? Like, who do you say that Jesus is, and then why? So believer or unbeliever here this morning, I plead with you to come to terms with this question because eternity hangs in the balance. God's glory is at stake. And your joy and your satisfaction is at stake. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16. Peter pipes up, as is often the case with Peter. Right? Look at what Simon Peter says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So sometimes Peter gets it right. Sometimes Peter gets it horribly wrong. He's a real mixed bag in the Bible. But today he gets it right, beautifully right. In a few weeks, we're going to see him get it horribly wrong. But today he gets it right. Look at what he says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So let's slow down and think about this. What, what is he saying? What kind of statement is this? You are. It's an identity statement. You are. Two things, the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So there's a lot at stake here because as we will see in a second, God himself in Jesus heartily approves of this response from Peter. And so as Jesus's followers, disciples now, if that's you this morning, we, we want to pay careful attention to what Jesus approves and what Jesus commends, right? So what does Peter say? The Christ, number two, the son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? Christ just means anointed one. But in this context, what Peter is saying is, Jesus, I see you're the Messiah. Jesus, I see you're the Lord. Jesus, I see that you're worthy to be trusted, that you're worthy to be followed, that you're the Savior of the world. And then Son of the living God just simply means you are utterly unique in terms of relation to the Heavenly Father. Second person of the Trinity is how we would say it now in light of the revelation of the whole Bible. So what do we have? Peter gets an A on his theology test, right? Now he's going to get an F in a few weeks. And, and I find that strangely comforting. I think you should too. Jesus doesn't always use straight A theology students. In fact, he never uses straight A theology students. He's pleased to use those who humble themselves and return to him when they flunk out. Loves to use those kind of students. That's the gospel. That's grace. So now we're going to look at how the great professor, King Jesus, looks and responds to Peter. Like, what does he say to Peter in light of this confession? It's very interesting. And, and what follows, man, there's been a lot of theological ink spilled to talk about this. We won't have time to get into all of it. But these are deep waters theologically. So let's hang in there and see what we can make of this, okay? So this is now, so Peter's made his confession. Who do you say that I am? You're the guy. I trust you. I follow you. The whole world should do the same. That's what Peter's saying. And now Jesus responds to Peter. And this is very important. Let's study his response. Verse 17. And Jesus responded, answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Well, this is very similar to what we've already seen a few months ago in Matthew chapter 11. I'll just read it to you. Maybe at home it, it'll be on your screen. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, same word, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What he means there is the wise and understanding is wise and understanding in the, in the eyes of the world, like the Pharisees, Sadducees, those that think they have it all together. It, it hasn't come for them, but God, you revealed to little children, meaning those who humble themselves and follow him. It also reminds me of this verse. This is uh, second, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, notice, don't have the ability, no one has the ability to say Jesus is Lord, how? Except in the Holy Spirit. So look at our verse again, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's think about this. Peter gets an A on his theology test. Answers correctly. King of the universe, Lord of all. Jesus is the hinge on which all of history turns. And Jesus tells him, Peter, you're blessed. You know why? You know why this you're blessed, and you know why you know this to be true, Peter? You know why? You know how that happened to you, that you made this pronouncement, that you get an A on your theology test? It's not first and foremost because you just figured it out. It's not first and foremost because you're just happen to be smarter than all those other guys who didn't respond with the correct answer. It's not first and foremost because you happen to be a great theology test taker. It doesn't say that, does it? What does the text say? Jesus says, you know why you said this, Peter? What's the key word? Revealed. Who's the active agent in this verse? Is it Peter and his autonomous free will to figure things out all on his own? It's not. God is the agent that is the primary actor. That's the one who reveals things, right? It's not flesh and blood, the text says, meaning human beings. Like, you didn't figure this out with your flesh and blood brain and just, like, calmly sit back and, and consider the evidence, the empirical data, your rationality. Nope. It's not what it says. It says, God revealed this to you, Peter. You answered correctly because God gave you the answer. God did a prior work so that you could even say yes to this. God gets the credit, not you, Peter, right? You see that? No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and what? Revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So if you join Peter this morning and say yes to Jesus... This is where God's grace comes crashing into your reality and humbles you and sobers you and causes you to want to say, Lord, I'm, I'm a, I stand amazed at your mercy. Because if we join Peter, it's not because I figured it out all on my own so then I could get a big head because I'm so smart and I could pass the theology test. That's not what the Bible says. It might feel that way, but remember, the Bible gets to interpret my experience. My experience doesn't interpret the Bible. You with me? Like that's a key distinction here. I might feel like I figured it out, like I assessed the evidence, and then I, ooh, I said yes to Jesus. But the Bible says that's not how it happened. According to Jesus, if anyone says Jesus is Lord and the Messiah and Savior of the world, it's because God did the work in your heart and brain to first enable you to even say the words. And then your experience follows after, and you go, Jesus is Lord. I love it. He's opened my eyes. Praise God. So what happens then? 
There's no room for pride. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for arrogance if you're a Christian, right? Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. How beautiful is this? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love, so he's the loving one, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, think about like who's an active agent when you're dead. No one, right? Even when we were dead, dead people can't respond to Jesus on their own. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what happened? God made us alive together with Christ. And listen to what he says. By grace, you've been saved. You didn't do anything. You didn't contribute anything. It's all grace. And that's what he's reminding Peter of here. You didn't contribute anything to your confession. You get an A, but it's because God gave you the A. God gave you the answer. God now gets the glory, and we get the joy, right, of knowing that we have received this revelation. No joy, all joyful, no, I'm sorry, no pride, no pride, all joyful and loving humility. Like, isn't the gospel beautiful? And here's the deal. If you don't yet believe this today, like if you don't join Peter in his confession about who Jesus is yet, you can come right now. You can repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and turn towards Jesus, and he will receive you. And when you receive him and turn from your sin and believe that Jesus took your sin from you and paid the penalty for that in your place as God's substitute on the cross and rose again from the dead to prove it all true, then you become a Christian. And then you start reading your Bible. And then you learn what Peter learned and what we learn, that this whole conversion experience that we have, or might have even today right now, is all because God is merciful to reveal it to us and give us eyes to see and a will to respond to him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So come to Jesus, and then you'll let God's word interpret that experience. Let's keep reading. So Peter makes his confession, right? True identity of Jesus. Jesus explains how that happened to Peter. And then Peter hears some more amazing news. Look at 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's kind of a weird verse, right? Like, how do gates prevail? Look at it there. How do gates prevail in a battle? The gates of hell shall not prevail. What is Jesus saying here? Well, what is a gate? A gate is defensive in nature, right? Like, it's not an offensive weapon. You don't pick up a gate and, like, go attack someone. Like, check out my picket fence. I'm here to attack you. Rah. Like, that's kind of weird, right? But what are gates? Gates or maybe walls are around a kingdom or a castle. What, what, what do they do? They're fortifications of defense, of protection. 
They don't advance, they defend. One of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy movies is the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the enemies of the Fellowship of the Ring, Sauron and his whole horde. And what's the, what's the wicked wizard's name again? What's, Saruman. Sauron and Saruman. I always get those guys mixed up. So they're all advancing to crush the agenda of the Fellowship of the Ring and, and take the ring for themselves. And so all of the, the people on the good side, they, they rush to Helm's Deep. And Helm's Deep is like this big castle fortification with huge walls that has always been the protection of those on the side of good in Middle-earth. And so they figure that because this has always been the case, that no one will be able to penetrate this fortress and they'll be safe. Well, the bad guys, the fighting uruk and the orcs, they have a plan and in this poignant scene, one of the big, nasty fighting Yurikai has this big, huge thing he's holding, and he's rushing towards the wall. And it's basically him on a kamikaze mission to just throw himself with this explosive against the wall and open a hole in the wall so they can all rush in. And Aragon looks to um, Legolas, and Legolas is about ready to draw his bow and shoot the guy. And he hits him, but the guy keeps running. He gets to the wall. It explodes. There's an explosion in the wall, and they enter in. It's a powerful scene. And that's similar to the idea here. Hopefully, God's people don't act like fighting Urukai. But here's, the, uh, here's the, where the analogy comes into play. The gospel, and this is what Jesus is saying in verse 18, the gospel had two has explosive power. What is explosive power? It's just power that radiates out, right? And there's been this grace explosion through the gospel that's been happening for 2,000 years. Started in Jerusalem, and it's radiating out to Samaria and Judea, and what? To the ends of the earth. Here we sit, thousands of miles away, Hundreds of years later, the gospel has been radiating out even to Madison. I mean, you know how far we are from Jerusalem? You know how long ago that was? Just the fact that we sit here right now is evidence that what Jesus said to Peter is true. You feel that? The gates of hell have not prevailed. It's advancing. It's advancing. Like, the, the, the gates are being stormed by the gospel and God, God working through his people by the power of his spirit in his church to advance on the kingdom of Satan who wants to keep nobody alive to Jesus. But the gospel has been advancing for year after year after year after year. And so conversions are happening all over in places like Iran and China and North Africa and Ecuador and Madison and churches are being planted in all of these places, neighbors, nations. It's happening because of the promise here in verse 18. There will be an advance. It might seem like sometimes it's not advancing, 
but Jesus' promise will not fail. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Well, what does he say next? Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what does this mean? This is peculiar. Well, we have to think about keys. I will give, look at verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what do keys do? They open things, right? When it comes to a door, they open a door or they lock a door. So the person with the keys can open, let people into your house, or shut and lock it, keep people out of your house. So when Jesus says to Peter that he has the keys to heaven, what does that mean? It doesn't mean, like you hear in a lot of jokes, like so-and-so and so-and-so showed up at heaven and Peter was there, St. Peter was there, and blah, blah, blah. That's not what that means, that Peter's like standing at the doorway of heaven and He's got his little clipboard, and he's checking boxes about who's in and who's out. That's not what this means. It's not even about Peter. The point is the confession that Peter made. The confession, whether it's Peter or not, is what opens or closes. That's the point. It's the gospel proclamation. The identity of Jesus. Do people believe that or do they not? It's kind of like this. Peter, you're going to stand up and you're going to preach and declare this confession that you just made about me a few verses ago. And if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what you see Peter do. Stands up, numerous contexts, numerous crowds, and he preaches that Jesus is Lord and worthy to be trusted. And what happens? Some people are softened. Some people are hardened. Some people enter into the kingdom some people hate that message, and they're left out of the kingdom. So, Peter, you're going to preach the gospel, this gospel of my identity, and some people are going to come in, and some people are going to be kept out. That's what he's talking about here. The gospel proclamation is the key. Peter's not the point. It's the confession that's the point. But then he says this, these peculiar words about binding and loosening. Look at that in verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean in practice? Well, binding and loosening, in ancient terms, it was like a Jewish rabbi would use those terms. And what it meant in our language that's a little more common for us would be like permitting and prohibiting. So I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, Peter, and you're going to have authority in light of the confession to permit and prohibit. In short, what he's saying is that the church, Peter's one of the first church planners and the other disciples, are going to have the authority to set boundaries. This community that you guys are going to establish under the heading of this confession of the gospel, it's going to have uh, authority to permit and prohibit. 
Jesus, this is very, very important. Jesus is affirming the role of the church, and here Peter is the, one of the first leaders of the church, and he's saying, you're going to have unique authority. But I want us to keep in mind the context here. This binding and loosening, prohibiting and permitting language, it's not in the abstract. It's not just like whatever, whenever. Like you have some authority to speak to the cosmos and have it bend to your will. That's not what he's saying at all. It's only in the context of the confession. All of this follows on the heels of that gospel confession that Peter makes. It's very important to see that, that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Christ, Son of God. And it's only in light of adhering to his word, now the Bible, and seeing him as Lord, that we have any authority. So Peter has no authority to bind or loosen or to permit or prohibit if he would have gotten that confession wrong. Does that make sense? The church has no authority whatsoever to say this far and no farther unless we get Jesus right. And if we get Jesus right, we're going to look to his word. And the implication for us is the word of God is the boundary by which we say this far and no farther. Okay? That's where our authority comes from. So you'll hear us say it a lot as elders, like, our doctrine of eldership is not that we just have some authority all in our own because, like, we're special guys or something. Like, that's not it at all. Our authority is only insofar as we submit to the under-shepherd and his way of doing things. What's that? It's God's word. We submit to the great shepherd as his under-shepherds. So in that sense, the church has delegated authority. So Jesus is delegating his authority to human beings in this church institution that he established, where Ephesians 2 says that he's the cornerstone, not, not us. He's the cornerstone, but he delegates authority until he returns. But only when we have the true view of Jesus, okay? Super important. The church will be wicked and abusive to the degree that we don't submit to King Jesus, that we don't submit to his word. May it never be so among us. And when we screw it up, which we will, in light of the gospel, we can repent and be honest about that, like we already did this morning, right? Our human authority will never be perfect authority. And what's beautiful is we see that in Peter's life. If you read the rest of the Bible from here, you'll see Peter get it wrong a lot. A lot. And, and Jesus forgives him, reinstates him. Paul looks him in the eye and rebukes him. Read Galatians chapter 2. But Peter does amazing things. He stands up and preaches and 3,000 people get saved. He wrote two books of the Bible. But the authority only comes to the degree that we adhere to God and his boundaries. That's the point. So let's review and we'll be done. What have we covered? Who's Jesus? Who is he? Peter gets it right. He's Lord. He's Lord of all. Come to Jesus. Like we said last week, streams of living water will flow from you. 
God gets the glory, you get the joy. Come to Jesus. The gospel is true. The cross dealt with your sin. The empty tomb says it's all true. And you can live again with him forever. Secondly, the gates of hell, the, de the defense of hell against the advance of the gospel will never finally triumph. Amen. And number three, the church established by King Jesus, where he's the cornerstone, has true authority in the world over the people that are given in so much as they love, submit to, and live by the word of King Jesus in the Bible, as in so much as those leaders love and affirm and submit to the word of King Jesus, the Bible. What a beautiful text, is it not? Like, who do we say that Jesus is? We stand or fall in response to that. The church stands or falls in response to that question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this news, the beauty of it. We thank you so much for what you have done in history to see this text come to pass. And may it continue. May we continue to be faithful to the confession. May we continue to see the gospel radiate out. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.